You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. The sermon text this morning is from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is uh, what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. You may be seated. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, I am Chad, one of the pastors, if we have met or not met, um, and so thankful to be here with you this morning um, as we continue why not continue? Wow, I'm all thrown off because we're not continuing anything. We're starting something brand new. Um, <laughs> excitement is in the air. Uh, if you have your Bibles or apps with you, I, uh, we love that and are excited about it. I'm just going to tell you right straight up front, it might be difficult to keep up because we are beginning uh, the, our new series in the Minor Prophets, and we are doing today, uh, there are 12 Minor Prophets, if you're not aware of that, and we are doing 13 weeks because today I'm going to introduce to you some context and some overall themes uh, about the prophets. So we're not going to, as you can see, we read from Micah 6, chapter 8, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, and we did that because it captures a central um, aspect of all the minor prophets in its essence. And, um, and, and so we're going to be looking through some themes. We're going to talk about those in context. Scripture's on the board, but please, if you do have your Bibles, your apps are good because you can search. You know, check behind me and let's talk because uh, there's a lot going on. Though minor... They are not minor. Um, and so uh, if you would join me in prayer before we start, that the Lord be with us. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege we have to be able to come before you like this and open up your word. Um, God, you have in power inspired uh, this written scripture and inspired those who have preserved and collected and brought together for us what we hold in our hand today. Let we not take that lightly, and God, let, let us today uh, dive into the riches of what these prophets reveal about you. Teach us something, guide us, and make us more like Jesus. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, as they are often also called. Uh, why are they minor? And what is a prophet? That's what comes to mind for me. Um... It's a collection of 12 books, and as I mentioned, it's referred to uh, and also as the 12. Um, it's only called minor due to the comparably short length of each book. Pretty easy, right? Minor in the sense that it's shorter than, say, the other longer pro uh, prophetic books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But the content in these are in no way minor. They were written over a period of more than three centuries from approximately 780 to 420 BC. Um, as, as Aaron has already mentioned, we put together, which I think someone told me this is not on brand for me because we don't normally do printed handouts, but we printed uh, some information about those in a, in a nice spreadsheet that provides you a little context for when these were written, uh, the audience to which they were written, some about the themes of each of these books, and hopefully would um, uh, make your study of the Minor Prophets a little even more fruitful. During the times of uh, their writing, they are before and after the exile uh, of Israel. They're spanning eras of the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian dominance of the region. And when you hear the word prophet, you might 
only think of foretellers of the future. That might be something that comes to mind, maybe someone who tells the future. But really, the prophets spent just as much time, if not more time, foretelling. Uh, scholar Paul Reddit actually provides some clarity to this idea of prophecy in the Old Testament. He says, quote, although the word prophecy often evokes images of people who predict the future, Hebrew prophets primarily anticipated the punishment of evil and or a better life on earth for faithful Israelites. They spoke the truth about the present and what would happen if people did not change their behavior and return to Yahweh's way. See, in Exodus 19, five through six, when making his original covenant, uh, with Israel, God tells them, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. He put his name on Israel. When we've talked about the 10 commandments, the first one often is, is cited as saying, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And if you've grown up like me in different church settings, it's like, well, I'm just not gonna use his name as the byword. I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna cuss and use God's name in vain in that way. Well, that's definitely a piece of this, but that's not all of what that means. Because when God puts his name and you represent him before the world, there's a way in which we can live life that takes his name in vain that profanes his name. And Israel is no different. Jesus, uh, God tells them in Exodus, you're gonna represent me. And then he starts his commandments by saying, don't bear my name in vain. They were a holy nation. They were set apart for God from all the other nations. They were a kingdom of priests, meaning that they were intercessors between God and man, between heaven and earth. They brought a message to people about, about who God is, and they also interceded in prayer for the world before God. The prophets, in, in a way, acted as God's covenant enforcement mediators for ancient Israel. They came in to say, guys, you're getting off track. This isn't how it's supposed to be. You need to get back in line. What did he tell us to do as opposed to how are you living it out? Uh, hope. Hobart Freeman, in his introduction to the Old Testament prophets, actually contends that the origin of the prophetic institution in Israel was established for the specific purpose of guarding Israel against Canaan's superstitious practices as well as those of her neighbors. So that Israel is being reminded day after day, you're not supposed to be like the people that live around you in the way that you live, but rather you honor and glorify God through your very life. Scholar, Sidney, I can't say her last name, Gradanus, his last name, I'm sorry, notes the prophets, quote, uncover and point out the idolatry, the corruption, the injustice that exists under the veneer of religiosity, and they call for radical change in God's people. That God's people were going through the motions, going to the synagogue, doing the sacrifices, doing the things that was expected of them as a good Jewish participant in their cultural religion. And yet their life and their heart did not match it. It was this disparity that the prophets often pointed to, that they were unjust with the way they treated one another, with the way that they abused those who were vulnerable in their community. 
Who is more vulnerable and exposed and helpless before the all-powerful and glorious God than humans? And yet he shows so much compassion and kindness towards us. Yet as, as people who have received such grace, Israel was demonstrating a lack of compassion and injustice towards their brothers, towards their sisters. In the way that they're arranged, there's actually recurring themes and phrases that tie one of the books to another in order. They run themes throughout. Drawing from an essay that Richard Ann Four wrote about this, he says that Hosea's vision of agricultural blessing as a reflection of future restoration is then linked to Joel's observation about agricultural destruction in a disastrous locust plague. Joel's anticipation of the Lord's one day roaring from Zion, he uses the phrase roaring from Zion against the nations defending his people, shifts at the opening of Amos to the Lord roaring from Zion in judgment against his people. The concluding visions of Amos has God restored, possessing the remnant of Edom, inferring God's adoption of Gentiles into his own, bringing the remnant of Edom, those who are non-Jewish. And Obadiah follows with God's judgment against Edom, culminating in the house of Jacob possessing um, everything that Edom owned. Obadiah and Jonah are linked because they both speak to the Gentile nations. Uh, the messenger sent in Obadiah proclaims judgment on the Assyrians and on, on Nineveh. Jonah is sent to preach repentance to Nineveh. Jonah finishes with affirmation that God is gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster, even to the Gentiles. While Micah echoes this same affirmation, but applies it to God's own people. Going from mercy back to judgment and echoing the same language, Jonah Open, uh, in Jonah, Nahum opens with that same statement that the Lord is slow to anger but great in power and that the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Meaning, yes, he is compassionate, but you don't just get away from his justice. When Nahum concludes with long-awaited justice against the violence of the Assyrian Empire, uh, the book of Habakkuk begins with the prophet's plea for present justice over the violence observed by God's own people. God responds to his prophet's plea for justice and raises up the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment. And the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah laid out in descriptive warnings by the next book of Zephaniah. And as Zephaniah concludes with the promise of restoration and the return of Judah's captives, Haggai and Zechariah follow with the first stage of the returning, reoccupying the land, yet still in need of further exhortation and repentance. The, recall, the call to return to me echoes throughout the last minor prophets, drawing the cord that links Malachi to Zechariah all the way back to Hosea. See, these Old Testament prophets were thoughtfully laid out and were encouraging, edifying, challenging, convicting the Old Testament Israel, but they are also still useful to us today. See, believers, in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter tells us, as well as Christians who follow after Christ, we are, quote, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his possession. And we all are called in that way to proclaim the praises of the one who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're brought into the family. God didn't change his mind. Rather, he expanded the family. And he intended to do it from the beginning. And wonderfully, we see the Gentiles being brought into repentance in the minor prophets. But we should not assume that we are no less susceptible to the temptations of Canaan. Yeah, guys, just because we are after Christ and he has promised us his spirit, I'm sorry, but we can look around this nation at many, many churches that profane the name. And many believers profane the name. I say people professing God's name, taking the name of Christ, Christian, little Christ, yet showing injustice, lack of compassion, hate, anger, all those things that are nothing that marks the God's people. For unbelievers, the minor prophets open a window into what is really truly the heart of God. We can see that they call to account evil perpetrated by people who claim his name. And it still happens today. People blame the church for the bad actors. You cannot fairly judge the character of God by men and women who live completely contrary to his heart. The minor prophets, though minor in length, hold profound insights into the heart of God. His plans for his people and his desires for justice, mercy, and relationship. Through these 12 voices, we hear echoes of redemption that culminate in the work of Christ and his call for his church today. Listen, the minor prophets show us God's consistent call to righteousness, repentance, and to relationship. And it emphasizes his undying love, justice, and the hope of restoration. These are themes throughout. And what I want to do as we embark before we head on this next 12 weeks is I want to lay some groundwork of looking at four particular themes that are consistent throughout the passages, how they show up in small ways, but also encourage you how they point to the person of Christ. And for you, my, my encouragement, as you read every week after week, like you read one minor prophet for a week, man, I read it over and over again. We got a checklist or whatever, just read that thing. Pour over it. Take these themes and just look. If you highlight and write in your Bible, I mean, I have a hard time doing that. I feel like I, I get like really tense when I start writing in my Bible. I don't know why that is. People tell me like, you're not gonna confuse your words with God's. I know, I just don't wanna mark it. It's a weird thing. But if you do that, highlight it, go with the themes, pay attention to where these themes show up and pay attention to how they continually point us to the coming King and the hope of restoration. So what are those four themes running? The first theme is this. Theme number one is the faithful love and pursuit of a holy God. Now, if you were to walk around on the street, we were out of Pacapalooza yesterday. I didn't do a man on the street interviews, but if you went and asking people, you get all kinds of ideas about who and what God is, okay? How he is. And there's a pretty consistent theme running. If God exists, that he's really more of an impersonal deity, right? He's, he's, he's there, we're here. This is something that was noticeable in the founding of, of the United States, that some of those, they, they, they ascribe to what is called Epicureanism that says that, yeah, okay, God's there, but he's not concerned with what's going on here with us. An impersonal deity, the belief system that he's distant, he's impersonal, a mere force of nature. There's also a temptation towards more of a prosperity type view of God, 
Meaning like he is primarily concerned with you having blessings materially and not really about a personal holy relationship. There's also the God who is either really only loving or just only judging, right? He, the, some views that overly emphasize God as being all love and his holiness is really um, it's cast to the side at the expense of his love. Others look at him as being more like a grandfather. Let me take this back a little bit. Some view, uh, views overly emphasize either God's love or his holiness, Either they see him as kind of as a grandfatherly figure who overlooks sin, or maybe as some harsh judge who's there and he's unapproachable. And none of these pictures are what we see of God in the Minor Prophets. None of them. Look at what Hosea says about, which by the way, the entire book of Hosea next week. Okay, you talk about God pursuing you, it's there. All right. But listen to this passage in Hosea 11, verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as, I'm sorry, yeah, Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. He's saying that I pulled them out of Egypt, and yet they were still looking to idols. They weren't looking to me. But even in the middle of that, verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand. But they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. He's, even when you don't care about me and you're not pursuing me and you're looking to other idols, I'm the one that's taking care of you. Isn't that life? The one who gives us breath? The reason you wake up every day and yet are tempted to go after any other idol in this world, and he yet sustains you. Hosea depicts God's love for Israel as profoundly tender. Cords of kindness, bands of love. Zephaniah, likewise, looks at the Lord and says, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Man, in some respects, I can't help but just feel like we're just like God's little kids. Man, you know, when your kid comes in and like literally when my child is just learning to walk and they take a couple steps and fall, I'm not like, get up, kid. What is wrong with you? Like, that's not our response. Seriously, you've been around for like 14 months. <laughs> Are you slow? No. Right? When they're first getting their words, you're not like, get it out already. No, no. Parents, aunts and uncles, brothers, when you see those things happening, you rejoice, right? You're overjoyed. Look what's happening. Look how they're growing. And I can't, in no uncertain terms, think as I like, oh man, I'm just getting something new. God's like, man, good job. I love you. You're doing so much better. It's taking a long time, but I love it. That's how Zephaniah portrays him. He will delight in you with singing. It describes God who's not only loves, but he rejoices over his people. It's intimate. It's up close. It's personal. And even more than that, as we look at those pictures, we see that Jesus embodies God's love and pursuit. So we go from the God who loves and pursues, and we see that it foretells Jesus and that he fully embodies God's love and pursuit. Hosea pursued his unfaithful wife. I'm telling you what, that's the book of Hosea. He marries an unfaithful wife and he, got, he has to go after her like crazy. And God says, that's your prophetic gift. That's not a gift I want. 
But Hosea bore that burden to give us a picture of God pursuing us even in our unfaithfulness. But in that same way, Jesus came to earth pursuing humanity with relentless love. He came not to condemn the world, John 3.17. We may be familiar with the end zone verse of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. 3.17 says that he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That God not only pursues them as he sends his prophets, yet he sends his own son for salvation. Literally, we see the prophetic word that the Messiah will come and we'll, name, we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Quite literally, he tabernacles, he pitches a tent with us. If you do or don't like camping, there's nothing quite more personal than getting together with other families in a tent. Okay, you learn about each other real quick and it could go either way. But God connects with us in Christ. He's not impersonal. He's not far away. And friends, if that's the way you've been picturing God, that he's not altogether concerned with your life, he loves you and rejoices over you and wants to know you. And I hope that warms your heart to know that the one who created all things has a personal desire for you to know him and for him to know you. The second theme that runs through out the Old Testament prophets the minor prophets in particular, is the call to righteousness and repentance. There can often be a case where we look at the love of God and we might really take that on as a, a cheap grace. It's a language that's often used. Contemporary Christians uh, might have a perspective that underemphasizes the need for repentance, focus only on God's grace and missing the real transformative power of turning from sin. Meaning that if we were to take the theme of God pursuing and loving us and just say, cool, God, I'll do whatever I want to do now, then we don't truly understand the cost of that grace. <coughs> Zephaniah 2.3 says, he calls to his people, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. He's saying a heart that really knows God doesn't pursue after unrighteousness but desires to be right before him and trust in him. It's a constant call throughout. I can't even call all of these to, to task because it's regular the prophets are asking people to come after righteousness. And he also calls them to repentance because we can get legalistic about this, can't we? There's a difference in repentance and living a life to just try to please God. See, if we are pursuing righteousness and we're probably our checklist, because I mean, I, I have a little bit like twitches when we talk about checklists, like reading lists. I'm like, uh-uh, don't be legalistic. But at the same time, if we find ourselves wanting to please God by our actions, we miss it as well. We're not just, we are not righteous because we want to earn God's love. We want to seek righteousness because he already pours out his love on us. Joel 2, 12 through 13 says that even now, this is the Lord's decoration. I'm sorry, declaration, not decoration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Joel says, listen, don't just do all the things like sackcloth and ashes. Don't just try to do the, the religious aspects. Tear your heart. 
before God. Open it up to him. He knows you anyway and still loves you. Like, like that's the thing. Of, we talk about Christian community here. That's actually, the, that is where the power of Christian unity comes to play, where we know each other more fully, yet accept and love one another more deeply. Like, it's so easy. You can deceive yourself you come into, Christ, in, into a church like this, right, or any other place. And to be honest with you, I'm going to really, I'm going to acknowledge something. Some churches don't make you feel this way. Please tell me if we, we do. But you can come to a space and feel like you can't be yourself or you can't be acknowledged as being imperfect, that you have to have some things together. And if you don't, you should just stay home. Okay? That's an awful way to have a relationship because the enemy slides in the back door and says, they don't really know you, so they don't really love you. But God fully knows you, and he says, don't hide that from me, and don't hide it behind all this religiosity. Don't just come into play and be like, yeah, I'm gonna do things God wants because maybe he'll accept me, but never really open your heart to me. Repentance is turning from all other idols and just putting your trust in God freely that's where he then really begins to change you and in this repentance we're pointing to jesus because jesus is our righteousness and is the ultimate call to repentance see the prophets called israel to repent they turned back to a holy god and yet jesus extended this call to all humanity and offered us his own righteousness that's what we're told by paul in second corinthians he says that, therefore, we are personally ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. What does Christ plead to the world? Be reconciled to God. How are you reconciled to God? Verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God accomplishes righteousness for all people who are completely unrighteous. If you want to raise your hand... We, we know this. If you think you're perfect and you think you got life down, ask your relatives. They'll tell you otherwise, okay? I'm just saying, my family is under no impression that I am righteous and of myself. Yet God looks at imperfect people, pours out his love on them, calls them to righteousness, and then changes them through Christ. That he's able to, in calling us repentance, repentance offer us the righteousness of Christ. That's what that means. Do you understand this? that Christ offers his body on the cross for our sin, taking that so that in exchange, we can be standing before God in his perfect righteousness and to be clothed in righteousness. God can know your imperfections, love you, and see you as righteous. My kids can't even do that. They can't see me as righteous. I think they love me, but they're like, nah, dad, you got problems. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to draw attention to y'all. Don't look at them. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus is our righteousness and the call to repentance where we can actually see the work of God accomplishing our righteousness in him. The third theme that we see throughout the minor prophets is the consequence and judgment of sin. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he pours out his love and calls us to righteousness. But for those who don't, for those who don't turn, for those who don't repent, it's not just a free skate. Hey, and here's the reason. Let's be real honest. Friends, for someone in this world that is abhorrently 
destroying what God has created in Maine, if they are sinning before God and actively harming the rest of creation, it would not be loving for God to allow that to continue. I mean, even in our best try at being good people, we hurt other people. And throughout, God continues to warn the Israelites, your sin has consequences. When you are unjust, you harm the vulnerable. When you lack compassion, you harm those who need compassion. And over and over again, people will look at this world and say, there's no absolute right or wrong. It's really up to you. But I bet you have thought of a few things that someone's right was a wrong for you. Don't lie. They thought, they thought it was good in their own eyes, and you probably disagree. The same works all around. There is right and wrong before God. There is honoring him in the creative work that he's done in this world. And then there's completely ignoring the one who rules over all things and trying to please ourselves. Some people look at right and wrong and they know it's in the world and they know it's there, but they think it's just some form of karma and impersonal judgment. The world's gonna set things right. They'll get theirs. Karma gets you. I'm a sucker for some of those videos, you know, even though they show like the car that gets it right because it cuts somebody off. I'm like, oh, that hurts. Sorry. It's like my like today's uh, funny some videos. I don't know. Um, Nobody? I'm too old. I'm sorry. Okay. Cut that out of the tape. All right, so... um, Others will look at God as he's all forgiving. He's just going to look at the world. There's endless forgiveness. Everything that we do, it's all going to wash out in the end. The story from the minor prophets are different because in Habakkuk, we see that he looks out over Israel and he sees injustice. He sees anger. He sees lack of compassion. He sees people destroying themselves and one another. And God responds to Habakkuk when he sees this in verse 12 of chapter 2. And he says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? I don't know if you catch what Habakkuk's talking about, but to build a city with bloodshed and found a town with injustice is to try to advance some civilization on the backs of the vulnerable. It's literally what's happening here. To, to build a city with bloodshed, what is that more than to harm people just so you can get ahead? To not care how it affects those who have no voice for themselves. Sometimes social justice has like it's a buzzword in circle, certain church circles and we shut down conversation about the political ramifications of things and cultures and things that happen in our society. But the truth is God cares about how we as people care for the most vulnerable how we love them, how we serve them. And I don't think there's any possible way in which we will find a political perfection or nirvana by voting in the right person. But it truly matters how we treat our neighbor. Matter of fact, this language that is used, it says, woe to him. (laughs) Woe doesn't carry the weight that it does in the Old Testament, I'm telling you. It's a curse. Be cursed to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. 
God cares. Sin has consequence. It might not directly affect you. Maybe you pursue sin and you're like, yeah, it's just me. But it has ramifications and impacts. And God cares for those who are vulnerable to the effects of other people's sin. In the same way for you and I personally, when we are the one who are guilty before God, Nahum chapter one, verse two and three says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. It's so well written. It's like it's inspired. But the picture, the imagery name's getting across. God is slow to anger, but he's great in power and he will never leave the guilty unpunished. How often do you feel like, man, how come terrible people seem to get ahead? Why do the best people finish last? Why do good people finish last? As a believer, we can trust in the justice of God. And ultimately, that's what we need to do. It doesn't mean we don't pursue justice today in this world that we have, but we can't take care of all of it, nor should we expect to. And often the offense or the hurt or the uh, sin is against us personally, and there's nothing we can do about it. But we can pray for, we can trust, and we can love people with the compassion that God shows us. And we can trust that he is the perfect judge who does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And here's the amazing and wonderful thing, that for us who deserve that punishment, Christ has willingly taken it for us. So in effect, friends, when it's a Christian that offends you or sins against you, it's all covered under the cross. So we don't hold bitterness. We don't hold anger. We don't have to hold that against the person because God's the one who takes care of his people. And though he might seem slow to anger to us, we're like maybe like Habakkuk. His entire deal is, why aren't you doing something, God? Literally is what he's asking. And God says, trust me, I might take some time in your eyes. It might not be quick enough, but I make sure that all things are made right. And even above and beyond that, we see it point to Christ in this because Jesus is ultimately our compassionate judge. Throughout the Minor Prophets, that theme of judgment is present. And we also see in Jesus, not only does he come as a judge, but he demonstrates the compassion that God has for those who are harmed and hurt. It says he wept over Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 through 42, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Meaning that in your sin and in the sin of this world, you just, you're blind to what will bring peace. Turn to me. His heart is for people to be restored. His compassion and mercy is demonstrated in the way that he loves the sinner. He's always accused of sin, eating with sinners. I mean, that's like a, his regular rhythm. He's like, hey, there's some sinners here. Let's go, have, let's go have dinner. Let's go have lunch. Let's have a coffee. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm like, when's the last time you sat down with someone who doesn't believe and agree with what you believe in the church? When's the last time you just sat down and had a meal? Had a conversation? I, I haven't enough. I get in my own little circle, get in my bubble. 
Man, I love yesterday. I started to have some conversations with people who just don't see things the same way I do, and that's great. Because <laughs> I'm probably not right on everything. No, hold on, take that back. I'm not right on everything. I'll acknowledge it. I don't know, I'd fix it. So sorry, <laughs> help me out. But Jesus shows compassion to people who are far from God. He doesn't come in as one who's like dropping the hammer. It's like, oh my goodness, you didn't read your Bible this week? <laughs> Be gone. No, he is compassionate, but he is also a just judge. Acts 10, 42 says that, that, God, that he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He's the one that comes in the end and makes all things right. Theme number four is the ultimate hope of restoration. We see that God is pursuing and loving. We see that God is calling us to righteousness and repentance. We see that God is also compassionate but there is consequence and judgment of sin. But all in all, we also continually throughout the minor prophets see that there is an ultimate hope of restoration. Zechariah 8, 7 through 8 says that the Lord of armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and of the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. Zechariah brings a message of hope and restoration. He says, my people are scattered and I'm bringing them together. And who's the one who does it? Verse eight, I will, God speaking. He's the one that brings restoration. Micah 4, one through three says that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. That's a temple and, and kingly language. That's that he will set and establish his throne. That's what Psalm two talks about, God establishing his throne. And what happens when God establishes his throne? Does he wipe away half the earth? Do people get mad about it? No, it says people will stream to it. He's restoring what was lost at the beginning when the world scattered from people far from God. Because verse two, many nations will come and say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears and pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. What's he trying to tell you? God will establish his king and peace will come. He brings ultimate restoration what seems like a desperate time. <laughs> that is often, man, I go to people, you can get desperate and feel desperate in the world when you look around. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're checking out some, some news story and you're thinking, really, this is another thing. What's going on? COVID's on the news again coming around. What's happening? We're falling apart. We've got people here that are out sick. But God says in Micah that he will restore all things and bring back together people from around the world. And ultimately, friends, Jesus is the king who restores all things. When he talks about his holy mountain, Jesus is the one set on his holy mountain. In Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah and the minor prophets, the miners, told us that Jesus would come on a donkey. 
as the king. And in Revelation 21, 5, 21 verse 5, we actually see the culmination of this where it says, look, I am making everything new. The restoration that, that God offers and talks about that he looks forward to in the Minor Prophets, Jesus completes in the end in Revelation. The Minor Prophets collectively spotlight God's relentless pursuit of his people. I, even in their waywardness. And for us, brothers and sisters, how often, I mean, I, that's why I resonate with that song so much, <laughs> where I, I often wonder, <laughs> Lord, Lord, I'm not, I'm, now see, I shouldn't actually, I should have this in my notes, Aaron, before I start saying it, because I can't remember the, the lyric to this song. Sorry, never mind. Man, there's a lot happening today. Over and over again, Aaron says, stop talking, shooting from the hip. You just got to go with the notes. I'm like, I know. Even in their waywardness, and we're so off, we, we are to wander. Temptation abounds. But we see God's heart for justice, mercy, and relationship, and we're drawn to the ultimate fulfillment of all those things in Christ. And there's a call for us as the church. Friends, to be the bearers of this message. We bring the message that God has accomplished what he is calling and talking about in the Minor Prophets for us today in Christ. And we listen to these ancient echoes of redemption. And our, my desire for us is they will resound fresh and new for us today. That as we go through the books of the Minor Prophets over the next 12 weeks, that you will continue to see in these themes that are present, that they are regularly pointing us to Jesus Christ. Pray with me.